Okay, we are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, uh, please join me as we welcome home tonight's special guest, Matthew Silverman. And Matt's new book, which is fantastic, uh, is called Swinging 73, Baseball's Wildest Season, The Incredible Year That Baseball Got the Designated Hitter, White Swapping Pitchers, World Champion A's, and Willie Mays Said Goodbye to America, by Matthew Silverman, published by Lions Press. Matt, thanks so much for returning to the clubhouse. Thanks for having me again. Terrific. And this is a, you did a masterful job with this book. And I think the best way to start is, you, I, I, know, I know you're rather prolific and you, you uh, come out with uh, quite a few books, which are all great, and yet MetSilverman.com is Matt's blog. But what drew you to this year, this season, 1973? What, what made you want to write this book? Um, well, somebody, uh, who I, I can't even remember who it was, said, uh, you gotta, you got to beef up the material, because they gave him a list of, of stuff I was thinking of doing. He's like, I, I don't know about that. So I was putting my son to bed. Um, he was about four or five or something like that. And so I'm sitting there in the dark looking at it, and I just, the, the picture that's on the cover of Willie Mays down there just kind of popped in my head. At the time I was working on a 1969 book, I saw that somebody has um, uh, The Miracle Has Landed. And uh, the whole thing I was telling Greg Prince before uh, just kind of came into my head in, a, in like five minutes how I wanted to do it. Um, the team's involved. The original, I'm like, oh, a Mets book. We need something more than a Mets book. Oh, and a Mets A's book. I'm like, oh, Mets A's book. And then, I'm, uh, then I thought of the Yankees with the wife swapping and George Steinbrenner buying the team and, and uh, his involvement with, um, you know, the, the water with Watergate kind of – not really, essentially with Watergate, but because of Watergate, he got he got caught making illegal campaign campaign contributions, uh, and Yankee Stadium uh, essentially being torn down, which at the time was not really seen as that big of a deal. And we kind of, I kind of, to, to me, it was a big deal. I talked to Mike Gershman. I don't know how many of you know, died uh, many years ago, but he uh, wrote this book, Diamonds. And when I first met him, we talked for a long time about Yankee Stadium because I was too young to. Uh, have been there, although I could have, but just didn't make it. <laughs> and about how much better, I mean, how much that you couldn't even compare the new Yankee Stadium, which at the time, which now would be considered the old Yankee Stadium, but you know what I mean. The one that they tore down a few years ago was nothing like the original, and that was, uh, you know, a colossus of baseball. All the um, memories and all the greatness that was there, and, uh, and in the 70s, in that whole era, it, it was all about new. You know, it's like they wanted a new stadium. They got a new stadium, and, it, it, you know, uh, I think it held up pretty well, but it was just not the same as that. And we spend a lot of uh, uh, later part of the book talking about that last day at, uh, at Yankee Stadium. And uh, Stanley Cohn, who is also a prolific writer and was a huge Yankee fan, grew up going to games in the 40s, kind of takes us through. And then um, uh, another, like, small little story uh, was uh, Bert Sugar, Buying all the uh, memorabilia for essentially a song, uh, and selling that, and 
and putting his kids through through uh, school with seven truckloads worth of stuff that was considered junk then and now is probably all worth you know the chairs alone are probably worth a thousand dollars each. Right. And they sold for seven dollars at um, Corvettes Corvette, right. with with, um, with yeah with several packs of cigarettes uh, as well. So if you, you didn't smoke, you had to start to, in order to, to get those seats. And so the Yankees were kind of, uh, they, and they kind of, I think, carried the book up until um, uh, the September when the Mets and the A's and their whole run to destiny uh, kind of takes over. Exactly, and there's uh, there's a lot going on in the book, including the way you interweave current events at that time. But there seem to be, to me, three main subjects, so to speak, of the book that you got to believe Mets, the First year Steinbrenner, as you said, last year Yankee Stadium Bronx Bombers, and the Oakland A's. Uh, let's start, since we have a few Met fans in the clubhouse tonight and probably listening to the podcast, let's start with the you got to believe Mets. Either any any stories that really stand out to you or things that you, you're a true Met expert, were there things that as you got into the research of this book that you didn't know and that really struck you about that you got to believe team uh, it, well it, some of it is just that, that everything is so managed now and a lot of it was just off the cuff then uh, guys would uh, you know uh, one of the things that I did that I, that I, I kind of learned by um, going back and looking at it was essentially the first game of the year and the last game of the year looking at Yogi's um, uh, in-game management and, and and some things like that that I didn't realize. Like I, um, in the first game of the year, the Phillies take out Willie Montanez and bring up Darren Johnson, who actually plays a role in the book later because he became the A's first DH. Um, but he comes up and he and Tug McGraw gets him out. And then the last game of the year, the Mets are at Wrigley Field. They need to beat the Cubs uh, to claim the division. To claim the division, and if they don't win, they've got to play the second game of a doubleheader. And win that, and they're up um, six to four. And the, the tying run is the plate. Rick Monday, who was like a thirty home run hitter, uh, and actually he's got a weird point in the book where he got traded to, from Oakland to Chicago and sent Bill North there, and kind of started a little whirlwind as well. But Rick Monday is scheduled up. There's one out in the ninth inning, and this and the manager for the Cubs, uh, Whitey Lockman, does the same thing that Danny Ozark did. They take out their best their best hitter. And bring up um, uh, Glenn Becker, who was an old Cubs favorite, but was had been a home run all year. And they have him up, and he hits a little pop-up to John Milner. And if you've ever seen it, John Milner catches it and just steps on first, and it's a double play, and, and they win. And there's one of the smallest crowds um, at Wrigley Field. There's like 1,900 people at, at most. And everybody goes crazy in there. And one of the things that was that I didn't know... Leading up to it, because that was kind of jogging my memory. But I was talking to Rusty Staub at, uh, before a game at City Field one day, and um, he was telling me about how M. Donald Grant is like, "No, boys, no, 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 don't drink that champagne. We've got a second game to play." <laughs> and they're like, "You've got to be kidding me! We, you know, we just had this unbelievable uh, uh, comeback, which, um, uh, for those who don't know, the Mets went twenty-four and nine after being in last place at the end of uh, August." And M. Donald Grant, who's who essentially after um, Tug McGraw came up with the "you gotta believe" that kind of spurred the the city, he he was insulted about it and made Tug McGraw uh, apologize 
to to him in you know for coming up with the best slogan that the team's ever ever had. <laughs> and uh, he tells him, no, 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 you can't you can't uh, open that champagne in the in the victorious uh, locker room at Wrigley. And Rusty stopped going, uh, Mr. Grant. I'm going out there drunk if I have to, but and he and he'd been in the league since uh, 60, 62 and had not sniffed the playoffs. He's like, we're opening the champagne and we're having it now, and and as if like sent by angels, the umpires come in and knock on the door. He's like, oh, the ground's too wet. We're not going to bother with the second game, and the whole place just goes wild at that point. But uh, and Rusty Stubbs, he's just he's sitting there going, how do you not let us have the champagne? You know, after what after what we did. You know, and he's just, uh, he's, he's just like, uh, it was great. You know, the, the champagne tasted great, and, uh, um, and that was probably my favorite part on the, in, in the book to, to recollect because it was just uh, the ball-on-the-wall game and a bunch of other stuff that doesn't really get a lot of um, – there's actually a lot of stuff in it that kind of gets glossed over by the Mets, and uh, if any of you have any pull there, the Mets at this point have actually pretty much said they're not doing anything for the 73 – uh, season uh, this year, other than having Rusty Stops for the first yeah, pitch, except for whatever they did before I got there on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Which was which I mean, was I, nice. I think they should do something just like they did for the '69 squad, and or even the 2000 squad if they want to do that. Just have everybody there interviewing all the time. It would be it would be nice. And I talked to a lot of them, and some of them are, are just most of them are, are are great, and including some guys like Buzz Capra. Who, uh, you know, I was interviewing just because he was in the, the big Pete Rose fight, but I talked to him for like an hour and a half, and he's one of the funniest guys I've ever talked to. And the stork, George Theodore, I got in touch with, and Ron Hodges, and besides, you know, John Madelak and Staub and Kuzman and, and some of those guys that are, that are better known. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. I was talking to somebody here before. The 73 Bunch is a very likable group of guys. Yes. You would think the Mets would want to honor that, but these are the Mets. It's, I guess uh, you know, it's one of those things. I think if Tug McGraw was alive, they would, but he di- he died uh, ten years ago, actually. Uh, for the, but they had a thirtieth reunion mainly because of him. And uh, if anybody wants to shame them into doing it and maybe have me come over and write something or whatever, that, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't mind. All right. Well, we have a few guys who would like to shame him. No yes, there, there's some shame that that should be had because that was a great team and one of only four pennant winners they've had. Yeah. And all right, so that's uh, now let's move on a little bit to the Yankees. And certainly feel free to say anything you'd like about that group, but if there's one area that you could also speak upon, I think most people know about it, but some may not. And those who don't, I think, will find it really that it's not that this was not possible to actually happen. The wife swapping pitchers. Mm-hmm. And. Either anything that, if maybe just recount that story in brief, and then if there's anything that you uncovered that you didn't know about that as well. Well, I did find out that they're planning on doing a movie. I, I, I was uh, postulating um, that maybe uh, it doesn't happen now because Ben Affleck's supposed to play uh, Fritz Peterson and Matt Damon's supposed to play Mike Kekich, and um, it, it you know it, it sounded like it would be a lot of fun. And actually, Fritz Peterson. Uh, is is involved in it, and he was uh, was was telling me that that uh, you know they were going to do it anyway. And like Mike Ke- Mike Kekich, who was the other guy involved, um, he wants nothing to do with it. And he's living under an assumed name, and I think he became a dentist or something. Uh, <laughs> and is uh, wants nothing to do with it at all because Fritz Peterson's still married to the person that was used to be Mike Kekich's wife. 
And their thing, I said in the book, it was a lot like a lot of baseball trades where one side makes out great and the other side wishes <laughs> it never happened. And it, it kind of happened there too. And uh, I also talked to Sal Marciano, who was there um, interviewing them. And we've been on the other side of the state, actually. Back then, it was flipped over where the Yankees were in uh, Fort Lauderdale on the West Coast and the Mets were on the East Coast in uh, St. Petersburg to what it is now. And they made him drive through the night to, to get there. And he got Fritz Peterson uh, uh, talking to him on, on his, uh, his yard that, uh, that, that next morning. And, uh, you know, and also, because it was a different era, just because you got the interview didn't mean that it was over. You had to, he had to like bust it over to the Fort Lauderdale airport and put it on an airplane and, and get it up to Channel 7 and get it there at 6 o'clock. And he said they got like six times more uh, higher rating for that. Than, uh, than anything else. And Jim Bouton, who's ball four, kind of opened up a new, you know, era, you know, that I think the door was kicked in with this wife swapping thing where there was still, they were, they still, um, the, the players' private lives wasn't quite as open game, but once this happened, uh, the, the editorial departments at a lot of these papers are like, what are you doing? You know, if, if you don't do this, we're sending someone down there. And the Yankees actually, Try briefly to, to keep it under under their hat, you know, that maybe, you know, if we tell these guys they won't do it because they had kept it under their hat for Mickey Mantle for his womanizing and uh, all kinds of other stuff that he was doing for years. But um, there was there was no keeping this under their hat <laughs> and their lives. Uh, uh, you know, Fritz Peterson was was really a, a, a fine pitcher for the Yankees, one of their best pitchers of that whole era. And his arm started hurting and he just wasn't the same pitcher after that. And Mike Kekich. Uh, was traded to Cleveland about um, two months later. That's yeah, different time. Yes, it was. It was a different time, and uh, but it was amazing how people you know, gravitated to that kind of stuff. There wasn't, you know, the extra and um, some of the other shows where this stuff is just happening all the time. There was a few gossip magazines, but everyone descended on Florida to get a piece of that. That story, and Steinbrenner had just been owning the team for a couple of weeks, and was surprisingly um, uh, didn't say a whole lot, and was generally supportive. But uh, you know, he was sickened by the entire thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, so, so let's move on to another uh, group of characters with an, another character for an owner, the Oakland A's uh, of that year. Yeah, that, that was. Uh, a, a team that I think now is very overlooked. If you had a team, uh, you, you know, there's teams that make the playoffs many years in a row now because of the way the playoff system is set up. But at the time, um, they were, they, they still are the only team other than the Yankees to ever win three World Series. And uh, until the... Three the, consecutive. Three, yeah, yeah right. that's, I'm sorry, the three consecutive World Series. And this was kind of the, the middle one in... Um, if I go to the Sabre thing uh, this, this summer, it was one of my um, discussion points, was that that kind of made the A's a dynasty, that 73 one. Because they went in 72, they went in 74. It's a really good team, but there's been a lot of teams that done that. And Connie Mack did it with the Philadelphia A's uh, two or three times as well. But that 73 team is what really, um, I think, is the, the most dynamic of the whole, the whole bunch because they were... Uh, Charlie Finley, um, who was the owner of the A's, was... Um, uh, you know, was kind of Steinbrenner before there was a Steinbrenner, uh, except he was famous for being cheap, and it built the A's up for from uh, from nothing. I mean, they were 
with the worst team in baseball for many years. Uh, in, in the last several years in Philadelphia, through pretty much uh, all the years in Kansas City, and in 1968 they moved to Oakland. Uh, after looking at about seven or eight other cities before they finally uh, settled on Oakland, which was kind of a late entry into it. And they really didn't think the whole thing through. Oakland was not a great market for, to, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of people out there, but it already had the, the, the Giants, and the Giants weren't doing well. As soon as the A's got there, both teams started to sink a little bit. And even at the A's height, they really weren't nearly as popular as you would think a team that won three straight World Series and five division titles in a row and were, you know, without doubt the best team in the league in, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that span. Uh, and part of it was Charlie Finley, who just made them all insane. He was also, also served as the general manager, which is pretty much unheard of now, but he is the one that, before they instituted the draft, would go to people's houses, and uh, like Blue Moon Odom's house, and bring a truckload full of food and... And you know, just cozy up to the to the mother. He was from Birmingham, and anyone who was Southern, he would just charm their socks off and get them to sign with his team. Because at that point, it was an open market, and you could sign anybody. And the Yankees, a lot of times, got great players because of that. Uh, eventually, that started working against them. But uh, and when they instituted the the baseball draft, the Kansas City A's were still the worst team, so they were getting the top pick. And they signed Reggie Jackson and only got Reggie Jackson because the Mets picked Steve Chilcott with uh, uh, the first pick. And they also got Sal Bando and they, and they got um, Joe, Rudy, uh, Joe Rudy to sign beforehand. Uh, but So it wasn't just the draft. They, they really manipulated um, some of the prospects. And part of their allure was the A's stink. You're going to move right up. Now, Joe Rudy was a big Yankees fan, but he went with the A's because – he figured he had a you know chance to to break in with them, and he was he was right. And ironically, um, when he signed with the A's, they won five. When he, when he was deciding between those teams, the Yankees had won five straight uh, pennants, and when uh, and he ended up signing with the A's. And then during the apex of his career, the A's won five straight division titles. So he obviously made the right choice and helped uh, helped. Um, it was a big part of of them. The A's were a little more nondescript. They had Reggie and they had Raleigh Fingers, they had Catfish Hunter, but they had a lot of uh, you know the guys who were big stars then, but are kind of forgotten a little bit now, like like Joe Rudy I mentioned and Bert Campanaris. Um, Sal Bando is a little bit forgotten now, even though he was the captain of the A's from uh, like twenty three on, um, uh, and uh, they were just a really well put together team. And Charlie Finley, for all his uh, aggravation to the players was was a pretty good general manager as far as um, picking up uh, the players or at least listening to his scouts and, and, and coming in with, with, with those guys. And I'm sure we'll talk about the World Series part of it later, but that's that's kind of where the A's were. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did fantastic uh, and very thorough research on that team. Yes, and I, I was uh, fortunate to go out there for the uh, 40th reunion of the 1972 team where a lot of those players were there, and that gave me a – I'm from New York and understand a lot about baseball, but but be, actually being out there and seeing it and talking to those guys and uh, um, kind of enabled me to uh, get a better understanding of them and uh, – Mixed the, and also went to the Oakland Library because it's hard finding Oakland Tribunes <laughs> around here. Right. And uh, um, did went up to Cooperstown and, and, and some other stuff and uh, talked to a lot of 
players and you know would have loved to get more but some of them it's amazing how, how guys memories aren't there or some guys just aren't interested in talking about it right. well all the thorough research you did comes across in the book so kudos for that I thank you and so now if we can just come back to the east coast mm-hmm. for two two topics let's start first on the Yankee side with on the American League side with the designated hitter comes into play in yes. this season. Well, that, that that actually is what got the Yankees in the book because I'm like, well, if I'm doing a book on 1973, it has to start with a designated hitter because when you mention that to people, that is the they don't they they won't remember anything about the A's and the Mets or whatever. They remember the DH came in in that time, and uh, Ron Bloomberg has made a cottage industry from being that that first player to do it, even though he was um, not scheduled to be the DH. And only did it because he had a hamstring problem, and it was a day kind of like this, except maybe except maybe windier, where they just they were freezing to death out at uh, at Fenway, and he, he came up there and um, there's a pop up hit to center field, and Reggie Smith was the who's not really a center fielder anyway, lost the ball in the sun and the wind, and it fell in for double, and because of that, Bloomberg ended up coming up because uh, Louis Tiant lost his uh, control. Walked like three guys in a row, and uh, one of those guys was Ron Bloomberg. I, I, I even um, dug up the uh, Yankees radio call, and it was kind of funny that you know now would be a huge momentous occasion, and people would be talking about it for weeks. And Bill White barely even mentions that uh, this is Ron Bloomberg; he's the first DH. But if they caught the ball, uh, it might have ended up being uh, Orlando Cepeda being the first DH, who actually was the best DH um, of the year, it had been cut by Oakland. Uh, oddly enough, and uh, had a great uh, season with the uh, with the Red Sox, even though he he couldn't run and he couldn't play the field anymore. How did you get uh, Ron, being such a shy guy, to talk? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was tough. He's so busy that it took me about fifteen calls, and he was so nice every time. I knew it was going to happen, and finally, like the weekend that it was due, we finally got got it in there, and. Uh, even then, you know, uh, I we re- revised a couple chapters because he had, he has so much stuff to say, and he's also um, uh, he, he's Jewish, and he grew up in in the South, and it was um, told me about what it was like there and how how difficult that was, and he went to the Yankees, and so the first thing they did was send him back down to the to the Carolina League, <laughs> where he went to all the places that uh, you know that he grew up in Atlanta, and he went to all these small towns where. You know, they they weren't sure, you know, they had George Wallace was governor and all kinds of, uh, you know, non-tolerance, I guess you would, you would call it now. And um, it was a real, uh, it was a, the coup of his career getting that because he really didn't live up to the promise. He was one of several Yankees that had a lot of high expectations for, and he was the number one overall draft pick. Right. And was also recruited uh, by John Wooden at UCLA, and had a lot of offers for uh, basketball. And um, but he wanted to play baseball, and he loved the Yankees. And he said he still says it's the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, and obviously, that drop fly ball, uh, ball fly ball that fell in, has uh, uh, made his whole career um, because people he still book, he's still booked all the time because of that. Even though he had, and, and he hit three twenty that year, which people forget because. Um, he didn't, uh, you know, he, all they remember is that he was a DH. Yeah, he's such a nice guy that it's nice to see, see that he's made a, a career out of this. He, ha- he has, and, uh, and is a great spokesman for that and has really used it for, um, 
you know, for he does camps for kids and, and has been doing a lot of stuff. Absolutely. All right, so now let's go across town to somebody who is not, not is really a monument. Willie Mays says goodbye to America. Yeah, Willie Mays was, uh, was at the end of his career, and it was uh, the Mets had been trying to get Willie Mays for essentially since they came into the league, and the Giants kept telling him no, uh, no matter what they offered. And finally, um, the Giants were going broke. Like I said, once the A's got there, they were really losing money hand over fist. And they didn't want to let him go. He, he wanted a 10-year contract, and they couldn't afford it. They gave him a three-year contract and then found out that they couldn't afford that. And they finally traded him uh, in 1972 from, on Mother's Day. Joan Payson had used to own the Giants before she – or was a part owner of the Giants, I should say, before she uh, took over the Mets and had always loved Willie Mays and wanted him desperately – uh, on the team and finally got on Mother's Day weekend 1972 and it was great and it was uh, exciting and you know even uh, seeing the Willie Mays baseball card uh, that you know has him on there is, is exciting um, but he just didn't have that much left and the Mets were you know think the ba- outfield's bad now they 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 were uh, uh, they did have a very good left fielder and a good right fielder but in center field they had they had nobody to play there and ended up having Willie Mays be the opening day center fielder at uh, at age 41, almost 42. And he just couldn't cover the ground. But they had they had nobody else. And Yogi Berra was annoyed at him as well because he was kind of um, doing a 24-1 and one, uh, situation. Hey. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it was uh, the great Willie... Uh, was, they, they actually created an extra spot on the All-Star team for him. Uh, which uh, ended up getting Nolan Ryan on the All-Star team as well in uh, the Midsummer Classic. And uh, all right, so now let's move a little bit away from baseball. Well, no, let's let's go to the World Series. Okay. Uh, anything you want to talk about about that series? That well, you got to talk about the fight, the guy that got you there, the yeah. uh, the Pete Rose Bud Harrelson fight, and. Um, uh, one of the goals I had early on was to try and track down as many guys who were on the field at that particular time and ask them about the, the fight. And there were a lot of different vantage points. John Matalak was in the bathroom when it was going on, even though Pete Rose uh, said that he was right in the middle of the fight when uh, obviously he was, uh, he was busy doing something else. And uh, the, the, the Reds uh, were, were considered the best team in the league. They had lost to the, to the A's, who they thought was, were not as good as they were the previous year in the World Series. And now they've gotten back in the playoffs. They're playing this lousy Mets team that wins the division of 82 and 79, and they're like, we should be rolling over these, this team. Tom Seaver pitches just an unbelievable game and loses 2-1. to one. Um, And John Matalak, but John Matalak the next day pitches probably the game of his life with a two-hit shutout that ties the series. And then game three, uh, after the game, Bud Harrelson said, uh, the, the Reds are hitting like me. And at this point, there was no day off in the playoffs. They, they went straight from Cincinnati to New York and played on uh, Columbus Day. And all, these were all afternoon games, too. It's like It was amazing. They never thought about at all of playing these games at, at night. The World Series, they did have a couple night games, but uh, they did, they, all day games in the playoffs. And um, Pete Rose was so incensed about it. Uh, Jerry Kuzman said he was trying to hit hit him and he just couldn't he couldn't nail him. <laughs> and that made Pete Rose even more annoyed. And 
the Mets were up, I think it was 9-2 to two in the middle innings, and the Mets, there was ground ball to John Milner, and he throws to, to shortstop, and they get it back to first for a 3-6-3 double play. And if you see the, the footage, John Milner's running off the field, just stops and turns around and looks, and all of a sudden everybody is converging out there. And uh, they just went... It, it, it turned the place into a riot uh, within within short order after they got it uh, under control on the field, which took, a, which took a while. Pete Rose goes out there the next inning, and the fans start pelting him with stuff. And Bob Usler, who uh, is on WFAN, was a, a college student at the University of Bridgeport, was sitting in that part of the loge that's right above there and gave, gave a lot of description about what was what was going on and how it was just... Everybody just got caught up in a whole mob mentality, and they had to send a, bunch, a contingent of Mets out there to stop it. But uh, you know, it, it, it lit a, li- a little bit of a fire underneath the Reds. The Reds won the next day in extra innings, and then the Mets in Game Five pulled it out. Uh, and right in the middle of the game, right early in the game, Spiro Agnew resigned as well, um, which uh, um, that's a great story with uh, Greg Prince uh, that. that he uh, regaled for me that uh, he was at a, at a place and um, getting, um, I think it was McDonald's, and uh, he's listening to the radio. Uh, what, ele- what are you, 11 years old or so? I'm 10 years old. 10 years old. And what, what did you say? Um, I've got the, all from school, because it's so close, uh, which we actually had a... Uh, had to confirm that that's why I was off from school. <laughs> you asked me, but uh, we were on our way to the city with my, my mother, my sister, and myself. We stopped at the McDonald's. I had the game on transistor radio, and the girl working at McDonald's is asking me what's going on in the game, and I'm giving her pitch by pitch. And I suddenly said, uh, "So, oh my God, like Spear Wagner resigned from the game," and then she said, "Who cares? What's the score? I'm still doing nothing." So. And the Mets, uh, the Mets fever. It was, it was um, the I. I think there was a little more bandwagon fever. People weren't quite as ingrained uh, with the teams as they might be now. That people would hate the Mets no matter what. I think there were a lot of people that crossed the aisle for for the Mets during this time, and this whole city was just going uh, berserka over over the Mets. And after the game, there was they just completely tore the stadium apart. Uh, they were lucky to, and, and uh, seeing highlights of the, or seeing actual footage from the World Series, uh, you can see that, and actually it cost the Mets one of the games because they, they took some of the, the grass off the um, uh, warning track. The, the warning track was bigger. And so Don Hahn goes running out there on a fly ball in a game, uh, the, the, the series is tied one game apiece, and he goes out there and he kind of hesitates because he thinks the wall's coming up, but there's, he's got like three, three or four extra feet. And the ball kind of drops in for a double, and that sets the A's uh, up, and they ended up tying the game. And they lost, even though uh, watching the, 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 this bootleg of it that I had, uh, <laughs> Tom Seaver, I saw him pitch when I was a kid, but, uh, but I've never seen him. Pitch. And it's absolutely frigid. It's like last night's game. It, it, you know, it, it is like 35 degrees or so. Uh, Howie Rose um, also saying it was, like, you know, all the games he's been to, he's the coldest he's ever been. And it was um, uh, absolutely frigid, and the A's end up winning on a pass ball and a, and a ground ball single in, in there. And uh, um, this guy, Mike Andrews, caused a whole stir because he made an error earlier in the series. 
It's the only time in all my findings of baseball that I saw the word fire used for a player, but essentially that's what they did. The A's were already playing a, a player down because of some maneuvering that um, that Charlie Finley did and caused a whole stir. The A's were really considering not playing the World Series. They got it worked out and they brought, uh, mainly because Bowie Kuhn refused to allow them to, to do it. Uh, and um, he loved to overrule Charlie Finley. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, the Mets went up three games to two. Looked like they were going to have it, and um, I, I won't go into it now because I, I probably spent about five pages talking about all the different aspects of should George Stone or Tom Seaver pitch, which is also one of the things that most Mets fans, when they think of 1973, remember because you know they love Mets fans love a little controversy or what might have been. And so that's a, that's a, a nice nugget that people who weren't even alive then can really latch on to. Um, but as it turns out, they pitched, uh, they, they pitched Tom Seaver, and he pitched a good game, but the A's, Catfish Hunter was on the hill, and Catfish Hunter uh, beat him. And Reggie Jackson had been in a slump the whole time, and he came out of it. And then game seven, John Manilak had pitched like essentially five shutouts in a row with one under Two one earned runs that cost him game one, and got got pelted in uh, game five and uh, or game seven, and uh, that was it. And it was, you know, they, they were on such a high, and it was really, uh, you know, a bit of a downer. But it's hard to stay down because it was really they should have finished in last place or third place at, at best, and they ended up, uh, you know, almost beating the best team of, uh, you know. B- Stephanie's had a lot of good teams. I don't know if you could call them the best team of the decade, but they certainly were um, certainly were a great team. And uh, uh, you know they were they were, they were this close. <laughs> uh, before we, this is going to be the last subject we touch on before we go to questions from the uh, crowd. Uh, some of the current events that you bring into play that happened in '73 that you interweave through the story: Vietnam War, Watergate, Battle of the Sexes, the Equal Rights Amendment. The OPEC oil embargo, Spiro Agnew's resignation, as we spoke about, Roe v. Wade, Title IX legislation, the Yom Kippur War. Did you, uh, how difficult was it to, to interweave this into your writing and to do the research for all this? Or how'd you that was, that that was probably the hardest part because you you don't want to do something that, that put, put it in and it's really obvious. Like, okay, and you know, I, I, I did my best. Actually, some of those... I wrote ahead of time, and and so I was able to write and and work it in that way, and um, th- that was actually very uh, very helpful. And there was some some pop culture stuff too that I talked about, you know, because at the time and, and uh, for my part in it, I was uh, eight years old and had no idea any of this was happening. <laughs> I only knew about Watergate because it was interfering with the the cartoons after school. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've worked in some in the music, and and uh, you know, the Dark Side of the Moon came out, and uh, and 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 a lot of great music, and it was um, uh, it was fun working it in, uh, um, and it was that that was that was a, a challenge. I think I did a pretty good job of it. I tried to get in there get out because on these all these subjects you've you've talked about people have written entire books on, on them you know and when this is mostly a baseball book but um, in trying to tell what happened then I think the context of the day uh, you know 
that Watergate is is a big part of everything. Actually, right between when everyone was com- you know talking about Game <coughs> Six and um, the George Stone, at the time there wasn't a whole lot on it because that night was the Midnight Massacre, and so the people filed their stories. And then uh, with Midnight Massacre being um, uh, Nixon getting rid of the Attorney General uh, in a beyond controversial move, and uh, you know. Uh, calling it a um, constitutional crisis unlike anything uh, the country had seen before. And all this stuff was going on, and the the OPEC um, oil embargo uh, hadn't yet started, but there was a Yom Kippur war that uh, America's involvement with it, again, they were trying to stop a coalition of Arab uh, countries from overrunning Israel. And... uh, they weren't sure, you know, a couple of weeks later whether that, you know, the Russians might get involved, we might get involved, what the heck could happen, you know. You know, well, you look at look at it, how World War One started, it started for less reason than that. Um, you know, that, that these were things that were hanging over people's head and, uh, you know, it was just a, an interesting time to, um, to, to write about and to, uh, you know, I, th- I think that made... I think that that uh, helped bring the, the story made a little more real to people who may not remember it or may not remember all the details or weren't weren't alive and didn't know any of it. You know that that I think that's what really makes it a, uh, a superb, fascinating book. It's similar to Tim Wendell, who was here with his book mm-hmm. Summer of '68, where there was a lot going on in 1968 as well, uh, on on and off a baseball field. And, yes, uh, and this was five similar. years later, and things weren't quite as smoldering as they were then. But it, there was still a lot of uh, you know stuff going on, and Nixon would end up uh, you know resigning, and just like George Steinbrenner getting pardoned, but getting a presidential pardon. Yeah. All right. So now let's, uh, <coughs> Mister Met. Just like that. First, first off, when you said Midnight Master, my first thought in my head was, well, that doesn't happen until four years later. Yeah, I'm sorry, the Saturday Night Massacre. I was getting my eye, but I suppose didn't say Boston Massacre. Um, And and it's odd for me to be the one to ask an Atlanta Brave question, but 73 uh, must have had a lot of Hank Aaron, um, you know, revenue to 714 because of next year. There is, um, actually, John Rosengren wrote wrote a book on on 1973 as well, which... um, which was which was a wonderful book, and I've been in contact with with him a bunch about it. Um, I didn't want to expand it to more teams, but uh, but the Braves I bring in when they play the Mets. Actually, the the game where um, Don Hahn and George Theodore uh, collide, if anybody uh, you know remembers that, um, was during with the Braves being in there, and uh, and uh, you know so for Hank Aaron, I don't spend as much time on. And seventy four is really his year, but seventy three. And actually, 72 was the year he finally passed uh, Willie Mays. Willie Mays had held the National League home run record for seven years or so. And Hank Aaron finally passed him in 72. And in 73, it became apparent that he was going to take over Babe Ruth's record. And um, Hank Aaron got a lot of grief in Atlanta. Actually got more support on the road until finally uh, the second to last game. He hit home run 7-13 in Atlanta. You know, after not really supporting, is completely packed the next day, waiting to see him hit number seven fourteen, and uh, it, it would wait. No, I'm sorry, seven twelve. Yes, um, no. What is it? Was seven seven fifteen broke the record. Right. Anyway, he ended up one shy, <laughs> and he would tie it the next year on opening day, and uh, and um, 
you know, it w- was from there. But but he he is a part of the story, and uh, um, he, I, wor- I worked him in there. But uh, he was was not as appreciated in Atlanta as you would just assume. What was the sense you got from, I guess the Mets mostly, but from people in general about Barra's managerial capabilities and leadership and all that as a Mets There's um, some people that really question him. Uh, you know, uh, I, I did bring up the strategy to most to a lot of the different players. And a lot of them are, are, you know, professional to the end. The only one who, who really went off was uh, was Ed Cranepool, um, who is is a great guy to to uh, to talk to. And was wonderful to give me give me some time. Most everyone else gave a diplomatic answer, but when and and to his credit, uh, God bless him, Yogi Berra was only about eighty eight or so, and went through the Yogi Berra Museum, and and so I was like, you know. I had like four or five questions, but really there was one. I was like, would you do it all over again if you could start George Stone or Tom Seaver? And, you know, Yogi was like, those are two best guys I had. I went with them. And, you know, I, I would have been shocked if he's like, you know, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> George Stone, you know, but it being New York, if he starts George Stone, George Stone gets hammered, and he's the idiot that didn't pitch Tom Seaver in there, you know. Uh, with with Matlack uh, and all the shutouts going. Yes, yeah. and Madeline, yeah, and that's what most of the players said, um, was that it was Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, you know, Wayne Garrett actually defended him a lot because he gave him a shot to play. He didn't even start the Wayne, Jim Fergosi, believe it or not, was a, the third baseman starting the year and for a good part of it. And he stuck with Wayne Garrett and Wayne Garrett and Rusty Staub and Cleon Jones on a team that didn't hit at all. I mean, they were still essentially last, other than the Padres, who were just abysmal at the time, uh, were essentially the worst team in baseball offensively. But they got hot at the exact right time. And Cleon Jones hit like six home runs over the last 12 games on a team that did, you know that hit like 70 home runs. And... Um, uh, you know, I think some of it was they, they got lucky, and some of it was they just had unbelievable pitching and got the hits when they were needing it. And really, I was I was watching that game three, and I'm sitting there, um, and John Milner is up. Uh, unfortunately, he died um, a few years ago, and he hits a ball. And I, I, I obviously know what happens in this game and what happens in this series, and, and it's ninth inning, it's tied. And he crushes a ball, and I, I stand up, <laughs> going, go, go get it, and, and Reggie, and it just dies in the wind at Shea, and he runs back and catches it, and, and uh, you know, if it falls in, they win, they win that game, and uh, the a, this was when the A's were really demoralized by the whole Mike Andrews thing, and the Mets might have never even gotten back to Oakland, but, um, uh, you know, he tracked it down. He actually also hit a ball that I saw on there uh, that hit the brick. If you recall, they used to have the, the brick on uh, the right and left field walls. That was in play. And at the end of the 70s, when Joe Torre was manager, they, they changed that. That would have been a home run. And if, you know, there's another uh, what, what if. I mean, Yogi couldn't have done anything about that. But, uh, you know, th- that was one of those that uh, I, I was stunned when I saw that because I've never seen anyone mention that. And they didn't even mention that, you know, they didn't know at the time on the, on the broadcast, but I was like, that, that's a home run. <laughs> Can we bring everybody back? <laughs> but uh, I guess it doesn't work that way. So what, what did Cranepool have to say? He said, uh, how can you not pitch George Stone and you have Seaver and Madelak for game seven if you lose? What are you doing? And um, 
You know, uh, I, that's the what that's you know. There's the there's probably two groups of uh, Mets fans who think about this type of subject, and <laughs> one side is like, you know, you got Tom Seaver, you pitch him, and uh, you got uh, George Stone, and you pitch him. He was having the year of his life. He never had a really he never had a, a good year after that, and he wasn't really that great before. And he, that was probably the best trade the Mets made in the '70s was getting Felix Mion and um, uh, George Stone for uh, Gary Gentry, who had been a big hero in '69 but was kind of washed up, and Danny Frazella, who they really could have used in that postseason. So I, I heard this story once that Pete Rose and the major league umpires at that time had a good relationship. Whenever the umpires would go out, Pete Rose would pick up the tab, and you know umpires oh. never got paid that mm-hmm. much. So during that um, the the NL uh, championship game, he goes and Bud Housen get it in the fight, and the Mets go on to win go to World Series. The umpires had it in for Bud Housen because now they can't drink or go out and you know and drink and have the tag paid for. Um, and then the phantom tag, he gets called out because he was clearly safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Mets lose that game. Then no, they won that game. They won that game. Okay. So, and then they go on to lose. Did you ever hear a story about that? You know, what? about Pete Rose and his friendship with the umpires, how he used to pick up their beer tag? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I can't believe that neither of those guys got thrown out of the game. I mean, the, the, if they'd taken him out of the game, because there is a pre- there was a precedent that uh, in the 1934 World Series, I think, that um, Ducky Medwick was yanked out of the World Series in a one-sided game because the fans were essentially rioting uh, because he, in this particular case, it was because, no, he had had a few hits and he slid into the third baseman uh, hard. And, um, you know, they pulled the team off the field. They, they could have pulled Pete Rose off the field. and They probably should have thrown both of them out of the game because it was it was Harrelson <laughs> that threw it. But, you know, uh, maybe, you know, Umpires do strange things in these uh, in, in these playoff games. And Augie Donatelli, I must have looked at that play. He was the home plate umpire in Oakland. Uh, 10, 15, 20 times. And I still don't know how in God's name he, you know, he was on his butt looking looking essentially at the guy's, at Bray Fossey's shoes and making making the out call. <laughs> and I watched him. I kept watching him. I'm like, how does he end up on his belly on this particular play? Maybe because, you know, because all the drinks with uh, Pete, Pete Rose. <laughs> Any other... Uh, but Pete Rose was MVP, but maybe he yeah. had the sports writers had it in. Maybe he took the sports <laughs> writers out, too. Yeah. <laughs> was, was there an MVP of the championship series then? You know, they did not have one back then, but he was MVP of the the, um, the, the season. When, uh, you know, to be honest, I thought Hank Aaron certainly deserved some credit. I don't think he ever won an MVP. Or he might have won... 57. 57 right. yes. But he certainly was up there uh, as far as... Guys doing a great job. Pete Rose had a ton of hits back when you know that would get you an MVP. Now each row breaks the record and isn't doesn't even come close. So, um, yes, I remember '73 very well, uh, and I was a big Mets fan then, and I still am. Uh, but what I remember most was uh, they were uh, at least preseason. They had a very good team, and they were predicted to do quite well. And so. What I remember more than anything is how they underachieved mm-hmm. until they really caught on fire at the very end. Yeah, they were. Uh, 
the thing that saved them was that the National League East was just like a regular division. Uh, and I, I'm going to this in the book where, you know, the, the Cubs were actually having a, a huge year. And then they just went right in the toilet, and the Cardinals went up, and they had a huge year. And they were they were 15, 20 games over 500, and the Cardinals had started out, started out uh, like 15 games under 500 and really spiked, and then they went downhill. And then late in the year, the Pirates, who were, were uh, really um, hindered, you know, the, Roberto Clemente had died the previous, uh, that winter, and it really cast a pall over the team. And I think it took them a long time to get uh, their act together. It also took them a long time to figure out Manny Sanguian wasn't the right fielder. And they had Richie <laughs> Zisti, Dave Parker, sitting on the bench, and they finally decided, hey, maybe we should play one of those guys. And um, and the Pirates went up, and then they went down, and the Mets were the only team in that division. So by the end, nobody really had a good record. And then when the Mets went up, they faltered a tiny bit, and then you know, and then were just playing great. And that's how they ended up winning the division. But they 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 should have been. They had such good pitching. Uh, nowadays, you would just think they were shooing, but there's so much good pitching to go around back then, and the hitting wasn't uh, nearly as prolific Plus as it is injuries. now. And the Mets had a ton of injuries until, uh, yeah, thank you. But in 72, they were good until Rusty got and, hurt. Yes, and, and so the thought was the team would be back as a whole team, and they would have gotten over the Gil Hodges. And, and Rusty wasn't, in, wasn't on the DL, but he had been hit in the hand. Ramon I'm Hernandez sure. for the Pirates like drilled three or four Mets and, and broke... Uh, Jerry Gordy's arm, and he missed. Uh, you know, and you're, you're playing without your your catcher. No matter how good your pitchers are, they really relied on Grody, and uh, you know, had Ron Hodges and Duffy Dyer catching a lot of those games, and that had something uh, to do with it as well. And the, you know, the pitcher Jerry Kuzman set a record that Ari Dickey broke last year for most consecutive uh, scoreless innings, and John Madelak was great, and Tom Seaver won the Cy Young Award, even though his uh, shoulder really started hurting uh, towards the end. People could. If there was something you could question about Yogi, was really pitching Seaver too much because the last game of the year he could have done the same thing where he pitched Seaver um, for the second game if they needed that and have George Stone or somebody else pitch the f- first game. But he did the exact same thing then. He went with his best, and uh, they weren't sure Seaver was going to pitch at all against the Reds, or certainly not started. And then he got a cortisone shot, and he or some some type of shot, and he, and he felt a lot better. <laughs> I mean, you know, I never, I never really thought of the Roberto Clemente factor when thinking about the 1973 team, and it's you know unfortunate, uh, but it really was a perfect storm of just every, everything coming together for, for the New York Mets in 1973 at the end of the. And the Pirates were the you know the, the team everyone figured would get hot and would take it over because they had won seventy uh, one. Or se- no, 71. 70, 71, and 72. So they finally got hot, and they actually fired Bill, Ver- uh, Bill Verdon as manager in September, hired Danny Murta, who had been uh, the, uh, managing off and on since uh, the 50s with the Pirates, and, and was, was a great manager that, again, nobody really thinks about uh, today. But, um, you know, the Pirates actually played pretty well, but they played this series against the Mets, that was one of the strangest series, like a home-and-home home hockey series, where they had three game, two games in New York on Monday and Tuesday, and three games against uh, the Pirates of Shea right after that, uh, ending on a Friday. And that was really the difference in there. At one point, the Mets were um, an inning away from being essentially eliminated and came back and rallied and won. And even the ball-on-the-wall game, which I don't think I've explained, but the ball hit the top of the wall and came back, for those of you who may not have... 
be aware of it. It seemed like it was a home run. It was going to end the game and everything, and the Mets planted hopes. And um, it came back, and they threw out uh, um, Richie's disc at the plate. And uh, the Pirates, you know, people just assumed they were going to take it. But it uh, it was the one year that was not for them. They won in 74 and 75, so they could have won six straight division titles if, if not for those pesky Mets. That ball off the wall play, that was a weird scheduling thing that week. I was a young kid, but I remember following every night. The Mets played in Pittsburgh and then played home against the Pirates in the same week. Is yeah. that true in, in September? They did, the they did cook. Actually, the Mets and Yankees are doing yeah, something like that this, yeah. this year. But the Mets, they did that against the Orioles a few years ago. So, but it, they had more of these kind of quirky things. And I looked, and it didn't really have anything to do with football. It just was kind of the way that they did it. But back then, you have to realize that they had scheduled doubleheaders. They had Friday doubleheaders scheduled and Tuesday doubleheaders and doubleheaders out the yin-yang. Uh, you know, the doubleheaders, actually, the proliferation of them are what helped push the 69 Mets over the top. Uh, the schedules just were were wacky back then. Uh, and you also had a lot of teams that almost all the teams played football in the same stadium. So there were things that went on as far as the scheduling that you just wouldn't even imagine uh, today. Danny Murtaugh was quoted in the New York Times the day Shea Stadium opened and some New York Times person asked him or some literary person asked him what he think of the stadium and he wanted to be smart and he said this is a beautiful piece of architecture. That was his quote. quote. So when Shea Stadium had its last year someone pulled that up quoting Danny Murtaugh what he thought of Shea Stadium. Well, actually, with a uh, with a great literate, literate quote, I think what we're going to do because of podcast limitations, Matt will certainly be glad, I'm sure, to stay and schmooze, sell the book. Uh, to those listening to the podcast, just so you can go out and get this book, again, Swinging 73, Baseball's Wildest Season by Matthew Silverman, published by Lions Press. And we'd like to give Matt the final word if you wouldn't mind, uh, I loved your acknowledgments, and if you could just read the end of your acknowledgments, and we'll give you the final word, and that's how we'll end the podcast. All right. I actually was just talking about this today. Let's see. Um, of the many people involved in the story, unable to see 1973 turn 40, the missing link is Frank Edwin Tug McGraw. Even with a mustache gang plus a truckload of colorful characters from 73, Quotable Yogi, Unmatchable Tom Terrific, Cunning Catfish, Bombastic George, Braggart Reggie, Audacious Charlie O, and many others who formed part of this absorbing tale. My mind returns to Tug and his thigh-slapping glove, putting the Mets on his back in the last months of 73, and taking the team from the basement to the edge of the moon. A Falstaffian character with an unhittable screwball, mid-70s mojo, and a motto that lives on in the underdog in each of us, Tug inspired the story. You gotta believe, he said. He never said when to stop.